Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Audible is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip. This week on Twit, iStock Photo dumps top photographer over Getty Google controversy, updates on Flickr, Instagram and 500px, a roundtable discussion on cloud solutions for photographers, and an interview with Ryan Stansky from Squarespace. It's Wednesday, February 13, 2013, and this is Twit. Welcome back to TWIP, and I'm your host, not Frederick this week, this is Martin Bailey. And today on the show, we're going to be diving into iStock Photo, booting top photographer in wake of the Getty Google controversy, updates on Flickr, Instagram, and 500px, cloud storage and workflow for photographers, and an interview with Ryan Stansky from Squarespace. And joining me today are going to be, we've got Bruce Clark and Valerie Jardin. Hi, guys. Hello. Or Ohio gozaimasu. <laughs> Ohio gozaimasu. Yeah, it's, uh, it's 11 a.m. here in Tokyo. And uh, we, we've got plenty of uh, you know, cold weather here at the moment. I'm feeling in my, in my element. Uh, but what have you guys been doing? Valerie, tell us a little bit about what you've been up to recently. I've been writing a lot and working on new presentations for upcoming workshops. And I just opened registration for the Melbourne, Australia photo adventure in February next year. So it's registration is open uh, a year a year in advance, which is good because registrations are already coming in and I'm taking a small group. So yeah. once it's full, I can relax. <laughs> where, can, where can people go to find details on that, Valerie? Uh, all on my website. Okay. I can just go to my website, website and then the, the workshop um, link. And I have a quick announcement. I have one spot for the Paris workshop in May that just opened up. So um, okay. I'm sure it's going to go fast. Okay. So uh, this May, that's May 4th through the 10th. Sounds good. So when we when we get to the end and Valerie gives her website, if you're interested in that, let's jump over there and, and see if we see if that's a fit for your schedule. So Bruce, what are you up to? Oh well it's uh sort of off peak wedding season here where I live, but we're uh, we're we're gearing up, getting ready for the uh spring and summer here in, in Edmonton. The s- temperatures are starting to warm up a little bit and the snow's starting to melt, so we're gonna be pretty busy here soon. <clears throat> we actually just had some uh, couples uh, engagement shoot recently, and we're starting to get into that part of the season. And then just, yeah, just getting down to business and getting ready for this coming wedding season. And then I've got a couple of workshops that I'm going to be teaching. Uh, I teach at a local photography school here as well, so I've got a, a studio lighting and an off-camera flash course that's coming up in the spring. So I'll be busy preparing Excellent. and getting ready to teach that as well. So yeah, so it's just been a busy time and then we've got a few workshops and a little doing a little bit of uh, you know, a little training in that as well, my own self-improvement too, so. Well, yeah, we we all need to continue to improve ourselves if we if we expect to be helping others to do the same. So good yeah. stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. How about you, Martin? What have you been up to? Well, I've just got back from my the first of two 2013 Snow Monkey and Hokkaido tours. The first one I did with Chris Marquardt, and we had a blast. Mm. The, the group was 14, 
and then Chris, 15, and then me. So it was a good-sized group, and we, uh, we had a great time. Uh, but this this coming uh, Saturday, actually, I'm, I'm meeting up with David Duchemin, uh, so we and he's going to be our special guest on the second tour this year. So we've uh, we've got a great time planned there as well. I'm really looking forward to getting back to the Snow Monkeys and then Hokkaido starting again next week. Oh, that's great! Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm looking forward to. I've I've obviously I've known David for a while now. I've been you know Craft and Vision author and all that, but. It'll be the first time I meet him in person, so I'm really looking forward to that and to meeting the new group. And he just got back from Africa, so he's going from one ex- extreme weather to another. He is. He's uh, yeah. He's going to be. And I know he's a, he's a bit uh, worn out this week. It's, uh, it, you know, so yeah. he's, he's hopefully he's resting up and we'll be he'll be ready to jump on a plane. And uh, it's just tomorrow our time, so I guess it'll be uh, two days from now uh, over over in Canada. So. Well, uh, yeah, looking forward to welcoming him to Japan. That's great. Just keep him away from any walls or bridges. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> keep him safe. Yeah, yeah. Keep him safe. Yeah. Not okay. too close to monkeys either. Well, Never you know. know what? We actually, we, we stand literally just inches from the monkeys. So I, uh, the, we, as long as you don't touch them, you're pretty, you're yeah. pretty okay. But he's, oh, uh, no incident, no incident this year. Well, yeah, the the guy that um, that walked straight up and touched them at the Alpha Male last year is not with us again this year. So, <laughs> yeah, he was a nice guy, but just a little bit, uh, you know, didn't listen to instructions too well. I run into that with street photography when I tell people, you know, if be careful. I mean, you invade people's space and they may react. You never know how they're going to react. Right. You're too close or too persistent, and some some are, you know, learn the hard way and. And yeah. uh, get their cameras yanked out or something. Well, then they, then they don't do it again. That's oh hard. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have well, a question actually for both of you. Maybe as you lead these types of workshops, um, is there any? What do you guys have to worry about from your end in terms of liability if something happens to a uh, somebody who's in the? Imagine they sign waivers and whatnot before they. Yeah, and, and I carry a, a liability insurance. Yeah. yeah, for it's like a tour operator liability okay. insurance. Yeah. Yeah, here in Japan, I I run my Jap- Japanese works uh, workshops through a tour operator, and you know here you can't actually work as a tour operator unless you've got you're a register you're registered you've got licenses to do it, and they they want like millions of dollars in capital behind you before you can actually work as a tour operator. So mm-hmm. to do tours here in Japan legally, you have to work with a tour operator, and that's what I do, and they have all of the liability insurance. So. Yeah. You know, well, I that's just... kind of nice because it's it was a headache just to get the right coverage and um, and you have to give them some all the the scenarios possible that you could run into and and have everything in writing and right. it's uh, but it's actually nice that um, in the United uh, being in the United States and being a, a, a U.S. corporation I can I can do that and and take care of accommodations for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, as well for the French tours, but when I run workshops like in Australia, I just teach. I don't take care of accommodations. That's uh, that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to do all of the accommodation and everything on my own tours as well. And one of the reasons that I stopped doing that was because I found out that you really in Japan to do it to do it all above board, you had to do it with with a tour operator and yeah. and because of the savings that these guys get on tickets and hotel bookings and things they it actually costs me about the same per person to run it through them 
plus we get a, con- a tour conductor on the bus with us and she spends the whole 12 days with us so it makes things a lot easier so it's oh, not, yeah. yeah it's not always about the um you know just trying to do everything yourself because you can it's it's sometimes mm-hmm. even easier and cheaper in some ways to to outsource parts of your parts yeah. of your tasks yeah. mm-hmm yeah, we found that when we went to India last year, we were just going to kind of do it on our own. And, uh, you know, we just decided, nah, we'll just, we're going to hire a tour company. And really glad that we did. It just made our trip that much more efficient. We made more efficient use of our time. And they knew where to go. And mm. we didn't have to worry about logistics. They took care of all that for us. So it certainly yeah. made it easier. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I'll tell you what, let's jump into this first story. The top iStock photographer getting booted from uh, the... I, well, basically for my stock, uh, because of the fallout over the Google Getty controversy. So basically, a few weeks ago, we covered a story about that deal between iStock, Getty Images, and Google that allowed people to access around 5,000 stock images from Google Docs. And the, the pers- people that actually added those images to iStock were getting like $12. So, you know, we, we talked about that a little bit. I was on the show, actually, so I recall that. Um, many contributors were up in arms over this licensing agreement, and a movement al- among them started where they were all doing, like, a mass deactivation on February 2nd. And one of iStock's top contributors, Sean Locke, was notified after that by uh, iStock Photo that his account was going to be deleted and that was they he sort of linked it to them discovering that he'd he was working with another stock site that's still in beta and he'd also released a grease monkey script that made it easier for other iStock contributors to deactivate their accounts if they wanted to and you know so he was like one of the top contributors he was he had 12,000 images he sold almost a million licenses through iStock since 2004 and he also talked about this on his blog, which I read that yesterday. It's a pretty pretty cool story, the way he put it together. Um, Bruce, is this another situation of iStock basically making a bad situation worse? Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you take – and, and, and when reading again um, his blog, it sounded like he was also a very active contributor in the iStock photo forums. Yep. He was helping a lot of the other photographers over there as well. And we saw this a little bit with, with Flickr, you know, where they went after and targeted some maybe people who were a little more vocal or outspoken about some of the some of the issues or some of the problems. Hmm. And I think all it tends to do is just they, they get the negative more negative reaction than they than they would have if they just sort of left it alone. Um, particularly, you know, with uh, with Sean here, he was one of the top five contributors. So, you know, he's he, he's well known, I think, among the iStock photography community. Mm. And uh, his voice probably, you know, probably caused more defections um, than they would have had. So I think, you know, this is another one of those cases where they should have just kind of maybe bit their tongues a little bit and dealt with the situation uh, differently than they did. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Valerie, did you did you read uh, the the blog post as well, or have any yes, I did, in? and uh, wow, I mean, he was making his living pretty much exclusively from iStock, mm. which a few people do if they're full full time uh, stock photographers. That's probably all he does, and I didn't see his portfolio, but I assume he was shooting mostly people stock, mm. which is what sells the most. Um, so if he was making 
pretty much his full income from iStock. It's like being, it's like getting laid off without any compensation at this mm. point. Because by the time he gets all those images into other agencies, you know, with the keywording and everything, it's mm. going to take a while for those images to sell. Yeah. Um, so, yikes, that's uh, that's tough. I mean, I, I hope he recovers and and he he's stronger from it. Uh, but that's a, that's a tough break. I mean, the guy's probably has a family and <laughs> and making money from my stock is difficult. And mm. after twelve thousand images, a million. License, license, licensed images. Um, yeah, that's a lot of money. I can see how he can make a living out of it since they can go from, you know, a few cents of pictures if they're small, but, you know, it could be $10. Mm. So, I mean, times a million. Yeah. Even well, if they were just even a dollar a piece, yeah. you know, yeah, it mean, adds up. If, it, if so. he's averaging a dollar a dollar a, a license, that's a million dollars. So. Exactly. Right <laughs> but, there. you know, obviously the guy, I'm, I doubt that that's how much he's made. And, and if he has, all, all power to him. But, you know, it seemed like from reading his blog post, it does seem as though, uh, you know, I wondered really. The, he, I know that iStock has some sort of exclusivity over yeah. the images, so he probably can't take all of those 12,000 images and just drop them somewhere else. There's probably some sort of a clause that would stop him from doing that. So Not if they, not if they, they take him off the site. Well, that, that I would hope that I that's wonder. the case. I would hope that that's the case because, you know, it, it's basically that's his, uh, that's his, his capital, really, all yeah. everything that he's got in those images. So... But, it, I mean, it does sound as though they're looking at his blog post, and this is from his his side, so you never know quite how, you know, I don't want to be biased too much here, but it does seem as though iStock and Getty were a little bit heavy-handed. Their, you know, their requests to talk with him were were basically, it looks like they were, they didn't really want to try to sort out the problems. They were just trying to give him, uh, give him the boot face-to-face, or at least over Skype or however they talked to him, but... You know, it, they seemed a little bit heavy-handed, and I, I mean, I agree with Bruce. A lot of the time, people like Sean are are they're they're doing this because they want to help, and they're vocal because they they want to make things better, not just for themselves, but for the community. And I got a sense that he really he really had felt at home in the iStock community, and so it's a shame that they you know it's it's like one of your best friends booting you in the, in the butt, really. So. And yeah. it's a huge loss for them in the long run. Well, it is, it's yeah. One of the top five, right? I mean, that that's yeah. revenue that that iStock Photo are, are are kicking out as well. You know, it's not just his revenue. So it's a, it's a strange, a strange situation to be in. But you know, I mean, so Valerie, do you think that uh, that stock photography is still a viable option for photographers? You know, especially with these new developments. Um, in micro stock. That's all. You can still make decent money if that's all you do, and mm. if you're really, really good at it. And and it's it's mostly going to be. Um, and if you're very, yeah, very creative and um, your quality is um, is amazing because the um, and mostly people images. That's what sells in stock photography. Mm. So uh, that. I don't know how much longer, to be honest. Yeah. You know, the the prices are getting lower and lower. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's for, for stock photography. There is so much competition. 
But mm. the, if you're really good, you can still make good money. I mean, I'm sure this guy was making pretty good money. Yeah. Um, I mean, looking at his website, the quality of, work, his, yeah. of his work seems high. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, most people that make good money at stock photographers, at stock photography are shooting for stock photography. They're, they're shooting yeah. um, people in offices in, in nice, happy... They hire models, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, I think like for people like me that um, I shoot for myself primarily and for prints, and so it, it, most of my work is really not suitable. Um, and that's probably why I, I, I'm not, I've not really pursued it so far, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm working with a company at the moment that I, I can't talk about right now, but I'm, there's something big coming up that I'm really excited about. And I will be talking about in, uh, probably in March at some point, uh, here on Twit. but you know, I think that it, that things are changing slightly. But I, I agree that you've still got to make sure that you've, you're creating quality work if you expect anyone to, to actually buy it. Um, and, and, and their quality standards are really high, too. Yeah. Uh, when, you, when you first submit your images to iStock or any other stock agency, um, it's a good learning curve because a lot of your images will be rejected. And mm. it, um, so you, you learn a lot from it. But, um, yeah, stock images that will sell are not images you put on your wall, right. usually. Right. Something you'd see on a billboard or on an ad, like doctors in their, um, doctor, uh, like surgeons in their surgical mm. gear and, and right. the nurses with clipboards. And those are the images that sell. So, but that, that's a lot of work. I mean, you have to have models. It's not like you can just walk into a hospital and, and take pictures of people. You need release of, um, how do you call that, um, model releases. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's often through models. They hire models to do those. Um, yeah. Well, e even if it's not models, I mean, I know stock photographers that, that will just basically call on their friends and yeah. and they'll uh, you know they'll go off and do, do a shoot on a Sunday morning and they'll just get them to sign. Uh, it doesn't necessarily need to be a model, but, you, you know, it's, it's planned. It's all, it's all done for the you know with the end product in mind which is which is how you have to what you have to do to be successful with stock mm -hmm. bruce do you do you do any stock have any stock sales or anything like that no it's not an area of uh that i've uh, looked into or, or really dabbled into i think like uh, valerie was saying i think to really be successful at it you it really has to be your your focus um yeah. it's, it's too bad we don't have nicole on the show uh this week it'd be good to talk to her a little bit because she's obviously done quite well with her stock photography but you really have to focus on it i think it has to be you know you have to see what is selling what is appealing what are the what are the buyers wanting and then you have to shoot to that and you have to you know, so there's quite a bit of work involved, and um, like you say, you have to really do a lot of volume. I think these days, unless you can find maybe a particular niche uh, market, there might be some niche markets that that you could uh, serve and shoot for. Um, you like know, like food. underwater photography. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if food would be a niche anymore. I think there's so Probably many people not. out there getting into that. Um, you know, I think maybe specialty things. Um, like the photography that Don does, like the snowflake photography or yeah. un underwater photography or these types of maybe less served niches that not everybody can just sort of, you know, pick up a camera and do. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, a lot of people are going to shoot people uh, and do portraits. A lot of people can shoot food. Um, you know, obviously there's probably a plethora of photographers out there doing landscape and nature photography and, and then, you know, the uh, – the supply probably far outseeds the the demand, and mm. uh, like I think Valerie was saying, it's very difficult to get the images approved. If you look at some of the top 
um, stock agencies. Yeah. Um, there's actually, I ran across just in doing a little research for this, I kind of found an interesting site. It's called the uh, Micro Stock Insider. Uh, website. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. And it had some interesting, uh, it's got some interesting articles on there just about, it compares all the different stock sites, uh, micro stock sites in terms of what their financial arrangements are, um, how you get compensated, what the um, different agreements are that you have to sign. So it looks at some of the sites like Shutterstock and iStock. Um, a site I hadn't heard of called Dreams Time. Hmm. I'd never heard of that, but apparently it's one of the top five. Um, Fotolia and some other ones. So it's a, sort of an interesting site. It had uh, some interesting kind of uh, inside baseball uh, talk in terms of uh, my, the microstock world. So I think if photographers are interested in getting into that space, it would be good to do their research for sure and find out, you know, what are they really getting into before they get into it. I don't think anybody that's just sort of doing it casually and maybe think they'll throw a couple of their photos up and see if they sell. I don't think they're going to make a, a lot yeah, of a lot need- of money off of that. You oh, need thousands, sure. yeah, thousands of images to. Yeah. To well, make I mean, you, you also. I mean, one thing that I've found: a lot of people think that if you build a website and it, it looks nice, people will come and they'll all look at your images and they'll buy it. I mean, print selling prints, even if you've got a relatively large footprint on the social media sites, it's very difficult to actually sell prints directly from a website. And it's the same with, with stock. You know, if you've, even if you've got beautiful images, they've got to really be a fit. And, it, and people just, if you try to sell things alone, uh, I mean, there, there are sites out there that, I'm not going to mention names, but there are sites out there that give you all of the tools to create a great website, but they don't really help you to actually get your images in front of the, the a potential customer's uh, eyes. So, you know, that I think the big thing with iStock and companies like that is they... They make it easy for people to get to get their hands on your images, and so even if the amount that you that you make for each sale is is quite small, if you've got the volume, uh, you know obviously the volume of images, but then the volume of sales of those those images. It, I mean, like we were saying earlier, if Sean had made an average of a dollar a a sale, that's a million dollars there over the course of what nine years. And that's not a, that's not a bad amount of money to be taking home. So I think I'd take it. And me too. <laughs> And um, to its, I encourage uh, photographers to to go check out like iStock or any other stock site and just key in something like red balloon and they'll see there are thousands of pictures, oh, amazing yeah. images of red balloons or apples, whatever. It's amazing. Everything's been done. Now it's it's trying to find a different angle for a picture that's getting so difficult when you're getting into stock because it seems like everything's been done from every possible angle (laughs) with every possible background so trying to find new ways to shoot something is must be a constant struggle for stock photographers so you have to be very creative Mm, yeah Mm. yeah okay well that's that's good stuff let's uh let's move on and i'd like to give you a quick update on a few of the stories that we've been following in the past weeks. Firstly, Flickr is going through a bit of a renaissance lately with the release of their mobile app, but a recent bug resulted in private photos going public for a period of 30 days. And the bug's since been fixed, but could do you think that this could hurt Flickr's resurgence? Bruce, what do you think about this? I think they they dealt with it fairly quickly, and I don't know that the majority of um, Flickr users will probably even be aware that this happened. Mm. Uh, I mean, 
mean, obviously, if those who are who are following the you know Flickr and following the news sites and whatnot would probably have seen this story and be aware of it, but I don't know that the general public would necessarily be uh, all that aware of it. So I don't mm. know how much it will will hurt their kind of their resurgence here, or their their uh, renaissance that they're going through. Mm. But it certainly is a little troubling when you have photos marked as as private that go public, but I guess the old rule of thumb is pretty much anything that you post online or have online somewhere, you probably ex- expected at some point or another to be public, mm. uh, whether you want it to be or not, um, whether it's through a bug or whether it's through some, some other means. I think there's always that chance. As soon as it leaves your hands and is in somebody else's hands, mm. I guess there is always that risk. There's always that downside to, to having things you know, up online like that. But, um, yeah. but it's interesting to see Flickr kind of making this bit of this comeback because I think a lot of people have kind of written them off as, as you know, kind of dead. And there uh, seem to be re- you know, a bit of a resurgence. Yeah, I remember us talking about this a while back on Twip. And, you know, I mean, although I don't use Flickr anywhere near as much as I should, and and even over the last year or so, I haven't really been updating my account very, very often at all. But um, but I, I know that there are a lot of people that, that pretty much Flickr is their whole world. And so, you know, when you've got that number of people using something on a daily basis, it's going to be hard for it to just roll over and die. Uh, but it's nice that they are making a bit of a, a resurgence, Um when I first saw this news, the f- the first thing that went through my mind was, you know, that I'm glad that I actually don't upload full-size images because some people use it as a store, like a second backup for their images. Yep. Uh, and if that's the case, it's maybe a little bit more concerning. Uh, for me, I wouldn't lose any more than I've already got displayed on the uh, on the website anyway. But, you know, it's one of those things. Valerie, do you use uh, Flickr at all? No, I don't. You don't? So no comment. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so we might as well start the next one with a no comment from me because Instagram traditionally <laughs> Instagram traditionally accessible only on smartphones made the leap to the web this week and users can now follow, like and comment on images from a browser. And uh, uploading images is still restricted to the mobile app, but do you think that this will uh help Instagram to Win back some of the users that they lost over their terms and ser- terms of service controversy. Let's see, Valerie, you you you're like me. You don't use Instagram at all, right? I don't, but I I, th- I don't think Instagram is in trouble. I think people forget very quickly and they love it. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not really worried. I see Instagram as much as two months ago on you know pictures popping up here and there. So mm. I I don't. I don't think people are ready to give it up. No. And people do forget very easily. Yes, very quickly. Well, there's yeah. so much of that happening all the time. Right, right. You know, uh, this company makes this mistake. That company makes this. There's so much. It's every day. Mm. So do we really pay attention to that anymore? I, I think the thing is as well is if, we are, if we're bought into a, a technology or a company and they goof a little bit, then you, you don't you want to forget. You, you know, you don't want to rip all of your images out there because they, they made a bit of a mess up over on the yeah. terms of service. So it's it's generally, you know, if people that make the most noise about things like this are those that are ready to leave anyway. So That's true. And, and we don't, I mean, this is a free service, same as Facebook. Right. Right. And when people get 
so mad about, oh, Facebook did this and Facebook did that. Well, it's free. You don't yeah. have to be there. <laughs> and so they charge for um, they charge for, for advertising or if you want to promote a post. Well, it, why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's a pretty small price to pay, you know, if you want a post to to go to more people yeah. um, for $10, for example. That's a pretty cheap form of advertising. And, and they're in it to make money. Mm. So this is a free service. Most people don't have to pay a dollar to use Facebook or uh, every day, and mm. and they never have to worry about the. And if they don't like it, then they don't have to stay. Yeah, <laughs> That's what absolutely. I'm That's a good a good point. Good way to look at it. Bruce, do you use Instagram at all? Um, I, I use it a bit. Um, I'm not on there all the time, but I, I certainly use it from time to time to, to share images. I think like a lot of these services, the, the ones that seem to reach the critical mass and have the big user bases, they're going to make some fumbles and they're going to make some missteps along the way. And there'll be people that, you know, sort of complain about it and threaten to leave. But in a lot of cases, that number, they end up coming back just because that's, you know, in the case of Facebook, that's where all their friends are. So if they, if they leave it, where else are they going to go? I think there's some other alternatives to, to Instagram, but uh, it's not yet, you know, having the, the web feature is kind of nice. Um, hmm. you know, I, I've, I've used it a little bit and browsed at, you know, some other people's images. So it's nice to be able to go at, you know, see it from a browser yeah. without having to pull out my phone to, to look at the images. So, but yeah. whether that'll be a, you know, enough to bring people back that left, I, I know hard to say. I don't probably not, but I imagine that, it'll, that this will be most popular with people that want to keep up with the, with the Instagram community if they're part of it. Uh, but th- maybe they're sitting in their office and they don't want to be looking at their phone. <laughs> so they're, yeah. so they're yeah. going to be sitting looking at the screen instead and look like yeah. they're working. So that's that's probably where a lot of the the rejoicing over this this new feature will be coming from. Well, they kind of had to too. If you look at a lot of their competitors, like Flickr's and the 500 PX's, they you know they're they're all online, right, and accessible through a web browser as well. So I think it just kind of puts them, you know, levels the playing field and between them. Speaking of 500px. <laughs> yeah, speaking of 500px, we a couple of weeks ago, I was on the show then as well, we, we talked about the fact that Apple, the Apple Store had basically pulled the, well, Apple had pulled the 500px app from their store, and it was about the, the nudity that you, you can sometimes find in there. And uh, the, apparently they're back. The new app has a plus 17 rating and a button that will allow users to report photographs considered to be pornographic. Um, the thing is, you know what, we talked about this in depth, and I don't think it's so much pornographic, it, even just nudity. A lot of the time you're in a situation where you don't want nudity, even artistic nudity, to be shown on the screen. So it, it was it was a bit of a, it's a bit of a big thing, and I, I think that the, you know, we, we were talking about the underlying problem is, is that, They've got no real way at the moment of stopping people from uploading photos, uh, you know, with nudity in them, and not turning on the the, the checkbox that says that they are, you know, they are nude photos. And so, you know, some people are, are using that as a way of getting around it because you can be sitting on a train flicking through 500px images, and the next minute you've got uh, an iPad with a nude photo on there, and that can be embarrassing. So, and especially, I mean, if there's kids around, you don't want to be doing that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think that there's there's certainly a, a a part of this where people are using the fact that it's not monitored to get their images uh, in in front of people that they sh- should that don't really initially want to be looking at them. So uh, you know 
what do you think about this, Bruce? Do you, do you think that this is the best way to do it? Just put a, a plus 17 rating uh, button and a button on there? Yeah, you know, I haven't had a, really a chance to, like I had the 500px app before it got pulled down. And, um, you know, it's another one of those, there's just so many of these services out there with, you know, Instagram and Flickr. And so I, I just find I don't have the time to sit there with them mm. um, as much as maybe I'd like to. There's some beautiful photography on 500px, I think, of all the services I've, I've you know, seen uh, some of the most beautiful photography on 500px. So I think it's nice to see it back for sure on the app store. Um, I think photographers that want to be inspired and see some great photography. Mm. Um I haven't been on there as much recently, but I know when it first, when 500px first came out, it was really some of the best of the best was, mm. is what I was seeing. I think more recently they've opened it up a bit more and they're allowing you to upload more images. So it's maybe becoming, you know, a little um, more uh, watered down a bit. But um, well, yeah, it, I, you've, you've always been, if you pay the, the, yearly, um, the yearly subscription fee, you've always been able to upload more images. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think that the, the quality is still generally quite high. People, because the quality is high, people don't just throw, like empty their CF cards onto onto uh, 500px like some people mm -hmm. still do on Flickr. But um, it, it's I, I mean for me this this whole issue really is uh, it's about I, I, what I was hoping for, and this is what we were talking about uh, a couple of weeks ago was. I, I was kind of hoping that 500px would promise to put a better monitoring, like a human monitoring uh, layer behind the the app, um, or or even behind their their servers, so that when people are uploading stuff, and I know that there's a huge volume of work being put up there each day, but you know they need to make sure that when there's nudity, that checkbox is on, because then their app automatically doesn't show you the nude photos if you've said in in your settings that you don't want to see them. So really, I mean, it's this seems to me like a little bit of a weak way around it. it I was hoping for for more uh, of a promise from 500px on their side, rather than just putting a seven a plus 17 rating. Because I'm going to say okay to the 17 rating, but it doesn't mean that I necessarily want nude photos to be flicking up on my iPad when I'm sitting on the train. Right. You know, so yeah, that's true. Plus, here it seems like they expect people to report what they consider to be pornographic. Well, everybody's got a different opinion of what that would mean unless they have guidelines because some people get offended by boudoir photography, mm. for example. Yeah. Um, others don't even want to see a, a nude image and we'll call it pornographic for all we know when it's actually very artistic and very well done. So yeah. if, if, if they rely on, on viewers to actually report, Mm. images that's gonna that's gonna become crazy yeah yeah how are they gonna monitor that yeah because <laughs> everybody has a different opinion so yeah yeah well, i've had a few photographer friends who shoot you know like you say boudoir or yeah. even you know makeup artists who are working in collaboration with photographers and doing something that's more you know more artistic type nudes and somebody has complained about something they posted on facebook and the next thing they know they're booted off facebook for 30 days because somebody wow. just didn't really like a particular image and it wasn't anything that would be considered pornographic. It was just an artistic, it wasn't even a nude. It was maybe showing like a profile of a breast or something. It wasn't even anything you'd mm. see racier stuff on the cover of Maxim, in, you know, your local, you know, your local convenience store. So yeah. yeah. Well, so well, sometimes that, open it up to the public to, yeah. To, to, right. That, know. that's the thing. I mean, to me, it's, it's like, as I was saying, I, I don't necessarily think that this is that we're talking just pornographic. I think that there's, the the checkbox says something like, "Does this image contain nudity?" 
Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. I think even if we just think of it as nudity, if you've the setting on the, that everyone has in, uh, the ability to turn on or off is whether or not you want to see nudity. So that's the thing, really. That it's just if it's if it's got nudity in it, it should be marked so. And a lot of people just to sneak their images in, in front of more eyes, um, just don't turn that on. Or maybe just, maybe just they honestly forget to turn it on. But you know, if I if I was uploading something that had got nudity in it, I would make sure I'd got it checked on. And it looks like, yeah, you're right. I mean, the 500px are probably just trying to crowdsource and and have the people that are looking at it, uh, looking at their their photos, report the the uh, you know the nudity. And and if it is nudity, then you know anything. It's not it's not really ambiguous. If there's nudity in there, it's gonna it's gonna be nudity. So I think that we probably need to check if this is talking about porn, pornography yeah. or nudity. That's what uh, it says on the show notes. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty sure we're we're talking about nudity, and that's you know that's yeah. relatively you know binary. It's either it's either nudity or it isn't. So ho- hopefully it's, it's hopefully yeah. it'll work, and we'll uh, you know we'll we'll be able to keep um, keep the, the the app as good quality as it is because I love flicking through. Yeah, I mean, I'll often if I've got a got a few minutes, I'll often just grab my iPad, kick my feet up with a coffee, and uh, and just flick through a few images. It's great for inspiration. So, especially it's, if you go through the editor's pick. Oh yes, those yeah. are usually the best ones. That's yeah. what I do usually because I don't have a whole lot of time and I want to see the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's that's a good gallery to look at. It is. Oh, so much, so so much. Um, yeah, beautiful imagery, and it's such a. Um, a sort of great source of inspiration. Absolutely, so. yeah. So I'm glad they're back. Me too. I think that's a unanimous unanimous vote for. We're all happy that 500 Pix is back in the App Store, even though I I wasn't about to run off and delete my old copy no. of the app <laughs> just because it had been removed. But yeah, it's good news and um, good stuff. So let's move on. We we're going to talk a little bit now about. The cloud storage. Uh, Photo Venture recently published an article with tips for photographers on using using cloud storage. And this week we're gonna we're gonna do a bit of a roundtable discussion on how I panel here a small panel this week. Obviously, I was I was supposed to be on the show this week anyway, um, so we're basically missing a member. But we'll you know the three of us are gonna have a chat about how we incorporate cloud storage into our workflow. And what sort of services that we would recommend for photographers? So, let's see. Starting with Bruce, what sort of cloud services do you use currently in your workflow? Yeah, I mean, I would say I probably separate the cloud services that I use into three. I guess three categories. Mm. So, one of the categories would be just from a, a business organization standpoint. Um, I use a a site for I use Dropbox basically to sync all of my important business documents across all of my different computers. Mm. So that would be everything from you know contracts to accounting information to you know um, just anything related that's related to the business that I have to you know model releases all that kind of stuff. Mm. I'll keep all that stuff organized in a in a Dropbox folder. So that it's uh, you know I can access it from anywhere um, if I you know have it on my laptop or if it's on my desktop or if I'm traveling somewhere um, you know I can pull it up on my iPad um, mm. or you know if I'm somewhere where I don't have any of my devices with me I can always just go to the Dropbox mm. uh, page and log in and get and get something pull something down so you know I'll put everything up there uh, that's business related so those are kind of all of my I guess what I consider the business side of things mm. um, and then I use some cloud solutions for 
what would I consider my like my client proofing and client ordering. Mm. Um, so I was using SmugMug, and then I'm I'm in the process right now of also um, sort of taking a Zenfolio out for a, a test drive mm. and seeing you know if I like it. Let us know how you get on with that because I've I'm currently looking for a an alternative to to my my gallery software and one of the things that I was going to look at was Zenfolio so I'm interested to hear on you know how how that turns out for you yeah so there's that I was looking there's a there's another solution coming that's a WordPress um, um, thing that's coming out called ProofPress hmm. but it's been in kind of development for several years and it kind of languished and a new group's taken it over and it's supposed to be coming out fairly soon. And uh, there's, I, I can't really let the cat out of the bag, but uh, there's, we'll, we'll, we'll hear a little more later on in, in an interview that Frederick's doing, and you'll, you'll hear some exciting news coming from a, a company people might know about um, that might be a solution as well. So there's, so that's kind of the client side of things in terms of ordering um, software. And then I guess the third sort of cloud solution would be um, just backup services that I use to get my, you know, images backed up and, and offsite. So for those, I use a combination of, I use Flickr, as you were mentioning, as kind of a dumping ground. Mm. Um, just private galleries, uh, high-res JPEGs that, I, that I'll upload there. And then I also use uh, CrashPlan as a, as, as a backup service. And there's lots of great other ones out there. Um, you know, you've got Carbonite, Backblaze. Um, there's lots of different ones out there. And yeah. so that's what I use as kind of my online storage. So I guess those are sort of the three main i guess sort of cloud solutions that i use and then just this uh just this year back in october i signed up for the adobe i guess the creative cloud yeah um, so in a sense i guess that's a, a cloud solution that i'm using so i use all of those services uh with my photography business and uh you know and then obviously my website my blog that's all on you know online all of my email and everything else is is uh use run through gmail so that's all online so pretty much most of my business and everything is up, you know, up in the cloud. Good stuff, Valerie. What are you doing? How, how are you using um, the cloud? I use Back uh, Backblaze yep. uh, for online storage, and um, it's I think it's five dollars a month for unlimited storage. So yeah, yeah. It's um, a no-brainer. Exactly. I mean, something just happened to uh, one of my um, workshop uh, upcoming workshop participants, and her house was just burglarized. She lost everything. And she didn't have online storage. She probably had a backup drive that was probably stolen along with the computer that was sitting next to it. Mm. And, and uh, unless you have something off-site, you're not safe. Right. So, yeah, that would hurt. I mean, I hope I never have to use my... Uh, I hope I never have to recover anything from Backblaze, but at least I know it's all there and, and it's backed up constantly. And Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm, the first backup is takes a long time, like oh yes, month. Yeah. But uh, then after that, it's pretty quick. So yeah, I'm I'm very similar to you guys. Um, I I use Backblaze and I do the same sort of thing. I I I have I think it's almost five terabytes on Backblaze, um, and but that's that's take as you say. It took a long time to get the initial um, upload finished, but. It's not really because of Backblaze. Obviously, we're, we're the majority of the time we're restricted by the the size of the pipe outside of our from from our buildings onto the internet and stuff like that. Uh, I've got a relatively fast connection here in Japan, uh, but it it still takes a while to get the initial upload up uh, up there. But then what I do is I have a a second computer that's always turned on with a Drobo attached to it, 
and that has Backblaze on there. So everything that are, all of my digital images, all of my videos, uh, all of my documents and music, everything just gets copied as a backup onto the Drobo, which is, you know, that's that's got fault tolerance built in. But like you say, I mean, if someone walks away with the Drobo, that cannot be the only copy that you have. So that is set up to automatically upload anything that gets dropped onto the Drobo into the Backblaze account. Um, I I also use Dropbox, the same as you were saying, Bruce. Uh, I, I use Dropbox for documents, but I also, uh, for a, a long time now, what I, when as part of my digital photography uh, workflow, when I've selected my final sort of selection from any shoot, I drop all of, I make a, a copy of the, the raw files and any TIFFs or, or PSD files that I've, I've created along the way as well. Uh, but then I also just output a JPEG. And that JPEG goes into my Dropbox. So I've got a, a, a year folder for all of the years that I've got images from. And that just basically, that means that everything that I, that I have, that's also set up so that my iPhone syncs that, that, those JPEG folders. And so I've got everything automatically synced to my iPhone, my iPad. And because through Dropbox, it goes to all of my computers as well. And so that means that, the, you know, I don't have to worry about, um, about having to update things to see my images because I've also got an Apple TV and I've got that set up to, uh, to go to talk to the, the computer that I leave on all of the time. So I can just go to the Apple TV and browse my photos. Uh, so I kind of use Dropbox as a hybrid. It's kind of photo and it's, it's also document uh, related as well. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, I do use the the cloud um, iCloud, I guess it is, uh, on the iPhone for syncing notes and stuff like that. That's uh, since the probably the last year or so. That's become more more common, just for quick notes that I make to myself. Um, and then I've I also jumped on the creative the Adobe Creative Cloud pretty quickly as well. Although I did find that you know there, there's a there was a problem, uh, and I'm not sure if it's fixed yet. But I, I blogged about why I have to dump the Creative Cloud a, a number of months ago, and it was basically because I found that the uh, the when you you know obviously if you're paying a monthly subscription, uh, and that's the only way to do it still right now, uh, you what happens is Adobe will try to uh, verify that you still have the software, you know, the, the software on your computer will try to verify that you've paid your bill each month. And mm-hmm. if you yeah, don't, and if, yeah, and if you, if it doesn't verify that you've paid your bill, I think it was seven days. Um, within seven days, the software stops working. And obviously, if you are going to be, like I was going to be in Antarctica, literally the day, the first day, in my first day in Antarctica, I, my computer would have been trying to find out if I'd paid and it wasn't going to be able to get a, an internet connection for another 14, uh, no, almost 20 days. So I wasn't going to, be able to use the software. I blogged about it, and Adobe basically, they, they saw this stream of of um, people coming to their site from my site, and they, they, they got in touch, and they were great. They said, you know, okay, we understand this is a problem. We're going to make it right. They sorted it out for me and they also said that they were working on the solutions where people would be able to extend the the period that I don't know if they didn't commit to which which um way they were going to how they were actually going to fix this 
but I think it was like a hybrid uh, combination of people being able to call it call in ahead of time and and basically pre-verify that they'd that they'd paid or that they were going to and then that would give them a little bit of leeway uh, and they were also I think considering doing longer terms where you could actually pay three monthly and things like that but I can't recall exactly what the outcome was but they, they made it good so I'm happy yeah I'm still happy with the, the cloud uh, but I think that until we we hear something official from Adobe, if people are going to be traveling for more than a week, uh, possibly around the, the the date that you actually pay your Creative Cloud bill, then just check with the check the Adobe website before you leave. Because if you're not going to have uh, internet connectivity for a full for more than seven days, you could be in trouble. So, but just yeah, just check. Yeah. 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 Put that on your list to do, like calling your credit card company to right. tell them you're going to be traveling and they don't stop your card the minute you want to charge your first dinner in Paris or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that that happens. That does, yeah. I always call my card company. And they're actually, yeah. they're often now um, a little bit surprised when I call. So I think a lot of people don't really do that. But it, it can it can save you a lot of hassle if you're, if you're abroad and you start using your, especially when you're traveling. Um, like say, you know, with me going down to Antarctica, you go through LA, then you go for me, I went through LA and then down to, um, to Santiago and then across to Argentina. And before you know it, you've gone, you've jumped across two or three different countries and that can throw their, their alerts. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a good yeah, point. It's happened to me where actually I was, uh, inviting people for dinner mm. and they ended up having to pay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. they wouldn't take my American Express. They thought oh, I had no. stolen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's embarrassing. Yeah, would you like to come to dinner? Oh, and can you pay? <laughs> well yeah. planned, well yeah, planned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, great stuff. Before we move on, do you think it's possible, either of you think it's possible for a photographer to go all in and only use cloud solutions in their photography? Bruce, what do you think about that? Uh, I guess it depends on the kind of photography that they do and the, and the, and the, you know, the type of business that they have. Um, I think certainly if, yeah, I think it could be possible. Um, again, it just depends on their workflow and what their workflow looks like. I think for, for myself as a wedding photographer with just the volume of, of images that we're creating, uh, you know, on a weekly basis, I don't know that we could go all in, um, you know, just it's bandwidth is still becomes that issue, particularly now you've got these file sizes, you know, with cameras like the D800, you know, it's, you know, getting those images up into the cloud in a timely fashion still is a bit of an issue. Um, so, yeah, I think that makes it a little difficult for certain certain types of photographers to go completely all in and only use cloud solutions. But mm. I do appreciate being able to, you know, if I'm setting up a new computer, for example, now, it's great because all I have to do is set up the new computer you know, add Dropbox and boom, automatically all of my, you know, at least all the business side yeah. is there on my machine. I don't have to really think about it or do, you know, much beyond that. I can now go to the the, the cloud, install the Adobe products. Mm. So it's made life easier just in terms of if you're setting up a new computer or working on another system somewhere. But to go all in completely, I don't know. For me, I don't think I could go completely all in. I still need that. You know, I still need the truck, as they say. I still need something local. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How how about you, Valerie? Do you think that the, it's a, it's viable to to do that? Well, I I feel a little bit like Bruce about that. I we're probably going that direction, mm. but not quite ready for exclusively 
cop solution yet. But. Yeah, I think it all it all has to be based around a local copy. You know, it's uh, you even if we talk about the cloud, you're going to need something local. It it would be very worrying. I think um, I was talking recently. We had a conversation on Google Plus uh, about just building in Wi-Fi uh, or even like LTE or four G technology into the cameras and then just having your images go straight to the cloud. And that would worry me. You know, I, I still want something local before before anything else, go, before it goes off into the cloud and becomes, it's great for backup and it's great for syncing multiple machines, as, as we're saying. But I uh, I really do like the local copy. And, and unless I've got, I mean, I have, even when I'm traveling, I end up coming home with three copies of everything that I've shot, uh, just in case. And I I would hate to think, Plus, of course, it's 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 often not um, not possible to get your images into the cloud while you're traveling. So you know you, you've got to you've got to start with a local copy or multiple local copies. But then there's a lot of benefits to actually hooking things up to the cloud and and syncing and and sharing that way. So it's 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 all good stuff. Yeah, I always tell my workshop participants um, they, when they're done with their week in Paris or wherever they're going to be, um, the last thing they want to do is um, uh, format their memory cards before they get home. You know, oh, yes. memory's cheap. Just get a bunch of them and then put them in a safe place. Keep them on you. Don't mm. leave them at the hotel. And then that's the last thing you're going to format after it's. In your com- home computer, on the back of drive, in the cloud, um, mm. because you—it's what, what a waste. What if something happens? And yeah. uh, keep things separate yeah. as much as possible. Not on your laptop at the hotel only. Right. Uh, keep keep those those um, uh, CF cards on you in your camera bag, mm. and then back up at the hotel in your in your laptop. But. Yeah. Not everything together. <laughs> I, I totally agree. That's that's generally what I advise people as well. And and I, the thing is with wildlife, I mean, you you can shoot like ten thousand images yeah. it, it, over a couple of weeks easily with wildlife. So what I what I generally do is I just make sure I've, I I don't try to keep enough memory card. I've got I've got one hundred and twenty gig in one camera and two sixty four gig cards in my others, uh, but I still have to format them. And so yeah. what I generally do is. I just make sure that before I format the cards, it exists in three other places. Uh, in fact, it's generally four. I don't usually count my time machine backup as a as a fourth backup, uh, but as a backup, but it it is. So, you know, I've generally got th- got images in four places before I'll go off and and do the backup. Uh, uh, you know, re- format the cards. But um, yeah, it's it's all good stuff. I mean, just you know, it's good advice. We need to. Pe- some people turn up for my workshops. And we end up spending time uh, finding camera stores on the along the way because they've run out of space and they don't have enough hard drives. Um, but you, if the the worst thing about that is if you have to start buying uh, from stores in the middle of nowhere, you'll generally pay premium price for oh, your additional yes. cards as well. So it it, it definitely uh, pays to plan ahead. And if you if your solution is going to be to have the memory cards. And keep it all in the memory cards until you get home. Then, like you say, Valerie, just make sure you've got enough. And you always shoot more than you think you're going to do when you're traveling. Yeah. And if it's just to finish the day, go go from RAW to JPEG to finish the day. Just don't shoot less because you, you're running out of space. If you have mm. just this one memory card and you have 
couple more hours to enjoy the the city or wherever um just don't don't put the camera away just just switch to jpeg and you'll save space and you can still shoot and just just be careful um that's happened to me actually mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> learn from my mistakes yep well absolutely and that, and that's why people pay to come on workshops with people like you and and hopefully like me because we've we've got the experience to be able to back up what we're telling people and and a lot of the stuff it's it's based on experience so it's good stuff okay so before we move on to the q and a i'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor audible and we're gonna just do a little bit of a, a chat about this as well uh, audible is one of the well is the internet's leading provider of audio books with more than a hundred thousand downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many of the New York Times bestsellers as well. So for our listeners, Audible is offering a free audio book to give you a chance to try out their service. Uh, one audio book that, that you might want to consider is one that I've, I've listened to a couple of times now. And that's All Marketers Are Liars from Seth Godin. And Seth, Seth is, uh, is obviously, he's, he's very well known for his uh, his marketing related books, uh, but he's he's basically everything he's come out with. I have bought on all of the books that he's released until recently. Uh, I've I've got them all on Audible. Love listening to them. And if you wanted to get a free audio book of your choice, go to audio uh, audiblepodcast dot com slash twip. Uh, that's audiblepodcast dot com slash twip. And I, I mean, I've been using Audible for 12 years now, just coming up to 12 years now. So I remember using them on an old MP3 player that I that I bought years back and when I was commuting here in Tokyo. And I don't know how many uh, books I've got in my library, but it's it's probably well over 100 by this point. Uh, great service. And uh, I can certainly back up the uh, message that I, I give to people based on my own experience here, too. I, I've been using the, the service for a long time. So do either of you guys use Audible at all? I have. Yeah. Okay, yeah, Valerie? I have. Yeah. yeah, I do. Yeah, I've been listening to more business books lately. Me too. Um, yeah, that seems to be my uh, where I've been sort of digging in lately. I was listening to uh, a book called Selling the Invisible. It's a, it's a field guide to modern marketing by uh, Harry Beckwith. That one's kind of an interesting one. So yeah. well, as photographers, a lot of times we're selling a little bit of the invisible sometimes. Um, getting Absolutely. people to buy something before they've actually seen it mm. <laughs> in the case of wedding photography, for example. Oh, for uh, sure. So, yeah. So, yeah, I, I like I love Audible. It's great. Valerie, well, how about you? Um, I enjoy them, especially on road trips, like family road trips that, that keeps everybody entertained. So mm. if we pick something that everybody's going to enjoy, we're almost disappointed when we get to destination because we want to hear <laughs> the end of it. <laughs> you know, when you're on the road in the Midwest for... 10 hours of nothing, mm. uh, which is easy to do um, around here. So um, listening to a good book in the car is, is, is cool. Yeah, well, that's very much how I am as well. The problem with me is on road trips, if I'm if I'm traveling with my wife, she doesn't speak English, so I, or very, oh. very much English. So I generally, we, we go to music when we're in the car together. But um, if I'm traveling, I, I'll often make sure that I've got a couple of books loaded. I, I like the business-related books as well as, as you do, Bruce, and the marketing stuff. 
but I, I also listened to the uh, the Steve Jobs biography as well, and that was that was quite touching. It was that's a three. It, it comes in three parts, uh, but the the Walter Isaacson Steve Jobs biography was quite amazing as well. So I uh, I I'm, I can't see. Let me see how many. I've got like ninety. Yeah, it's ninety three. Imi- uh, I said it's probably over a hundred. Looking in my library, I've got ninety three um, books that I've bought. So it's a it's a relatively relatively big uh, big library that I've built up. Okay, we're going to insert an interview with Ryan Stansky from Squarespace. Frederick sat down with Ryan and they basically chatted about what they've been up to recently and revealed their newest feature, e-commerce. And I've been playing with this as well. Um, My own podcast is sponsored by Squarespace and I can tell you it's pretty exciting stuff. So here's the interview with Ryan Stansky. Okay, so I'm here with Mr. Ryan Stansky. He's on the marketing and business development team over at Squarespace, a little company that that handles websites that you may have heard of. Now, uh, full disclaimer, Squarespace is a sponsor of the show that I host, This Week in Photo, but that's not the reason Ryan is here. Ryan um, uh, agreed to come on because specifically we started the conversation talking about Sandy and just sort of how they were able to withstand Hurricane Sandy and all that good stuff. But it turns out there's a bunch of other things that we wanted to talk about as well. This isn't a marketing pitch. This is a conversation between photographers and uh, people that like the web. So Ryan Stansky, welcome to This Week in Photo. Thanks a lot. How's everyone doing? <laughs> it's Good. awesome. I know. I need like a I need <laughs> I a live you, studio audience or yeah, something. Yeah. Totally. Me too. I'm very like interactive when I uh when I speak and stuff, so it's it's kind of weird to Yeah, yeah. One day I'm going to have like when I want to be on one of those um CNN talk shows, you know where I get a desk and a big mic right there and I can <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Interview people on the couch, yep. Yeah, totally. So let's talk about your background a little bit. So People know you. You work at uh, Squarespace. You help them get the word out about Squarespace and all that. So, what's your what's your background before you joined that company? Sure. So, background before. I mean, I worked for Apple for a long time, um, teaching people how to teach people Apple products, mm. um, software, hardware. Um, so, I worked. You know, did stuff with the Genius Bar. A lot of stuff with creative teams, um, and just loved Apple and was with them for a long time. So, that was a big part of my life. Um, prior to that, I was in Texas. That's where I grew up. And so the first 20 years of my life were spent in Texas playing drums, uh, doing audio production and um, artist development. I did a ton of engineering, just kind of stayed up all night every night, didn't really go to school much um, because I was just constantly recording. And then it was like, yeah. how do I go to school, Dad? I was recording all night. He's <laughs> um, like, well, as long as you get A's, it's okay. And I was like, okay. And so and you got A's and I, it was all I, good, right? I pulled off 90s, you know, straight up 90s. Wow. Um, and then um, and then once I got to the AP classes, it was like, well, they give you 10 extra points if it's an AP class, so I can get a B, you know, and um, and they bought that too. So Scamming the um, system that early, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, I just made all the teachers like me. And so then I could actually like get away with extra absences and stuff. Anyways, I digress. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've always done photography as a hobby and, um, and I, I think I know it well, I know a lot of the technique well and stuff like that, but, um, but I don't shoot enough to really call myself a professional. 
by any means. So yeah. I also do like a lot of consulting for, you know, photographers and um, help a ton of friends of mine out that are photographers. Oh, that's cool. Um, that's cool. But, so you like yeah. consulting in terms of, of, of what business consulting, like how do they get on or just how do they get their website up? What's what kind of consulting? Well, so prior to Squarespace, just between Apple and Squarespace time, I, um, I did a ton of consulting. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of that, some of it was kind of tech or, you know, more on the tech side of helping people, but a lot of it moved quickly to the like business side of helping people trying to just help, you know, older business people who are freelance photographers um, or in other businesses, help them, you know, modernize their presence on the web um, right. and kind of the way they're doing marketing. So anything from social media advice to, you know, how to build your website, um, and that was sometimes for like medical companies or videos for ophthalmologists. Um, yeah. And so I did a lot of video production as well. Um, you know, one thing, one thing I wanted to ask you is, is just, it, it just popped into my head that when you mentioned consulting, especially with photographers that may not be on the cutting edge of where things are, you know, they may be the, the best photographer in the world, but when it comes to their, you know, storefront on the web, maybe that's not as modern as it could be. And the question that popped up is, is, Remember the whole discussion about Flash, and this is the perfect, you know, person to ask this to. So there was there was this whole hubbub about Flash, and Steve Jobs hated Flash, and you know wasn't going to support it in Safari, and it's not on the iOS devices, and all this stuff. But the other side of that coin was a lot of photographers felt that Flash was the best way to display their work online because of yeah. these gorgeous galleries and animations and thumbnails and all this stuff. Where, yeah. what's the state of the union there? Is, is flash completely gone now and it's all HTML five or what's, what's, what's the norm? Like, I'm wondering if I have a flash website up, am I like, you know, the guy that's driving the old car or, you know? yeah, sure. I mean, I, you know, I'll try to approach this with some grace and with some, some tact. We don't I need mean, grace or tact. Uh, it's the internet, man. Come on. Yeah, I mean, flash, <laughs> flash is flash is definitely over, and um, you know, especially from a web development perspective. Yeah. Um, and I I totally see the value that flash brought to people for a, an extended period of time, mm-hmm. and I see the appeal that it had. Um, I mean, even at at one point, you know, bands that I was in at a young age, we were developing flash websites for ourselves. And even a production company that I started with my friend at 17 years old to, you know, build websites and do audio and video design for people. Like, you know, we were trying to have our own business and stuff at like 17. It was kind of funny. And, um, we realized we weren't old enough to get a tax ID. Um, and so anyways, but he, he did all this flash stuff and it was great and it was very appealing to people, but that was, you know, 10 ish years ago. It's like, um, Oh, we need something that works on all these different devices mm-hmm. and people are going to more sites on mobile devices now than just, you know, than about the amount of people that are going to on a computer. Yeah. And so yeah. when you, when you build your website or even when you just look at your current website, you have to think differently. You can't think about how cool and flashy and neat does this look? Um, you know, what's the, uh, like boobity bah doing, you know, that's like going boom mm-hmm. and moving around and like yeah. all these animations. Like that's not what the web is about. Yeah. Think about the web is about someone going and finding you, viewing your work, and seeing your pictures. I mean, if you're a photographer, you want to share your images with people, and the best way to do that is to use a platform, whether that's Squarespace or WordPress or something else, that allows your images to look beautiful on the web on every device. Because you know, iPads are huge. Um, all these other tablets are huge. There's, you know, it's. It's a different world now. We're not thinking about just 
one device. Here's one experience. Um, and you know, there it is. Right. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it, it, it's everywhere. And so then, you know, the other, the other piece of the, or the, a tangent to that question is this, yeah. one of my pet peeves, um, is I hate when I go to a website, I don't care if it's a photographer's website or even a musician's website. I hate when I go yeah. to a website and it and immediately starts, starts playing, playing music. music. I, it's <laughs> terrible. No one like, do that. Why? I mean, like, I understand if you like, okay, I want to set the mood or whatever, but yeah. There's only a small percentage of the people that would even like that song that you're playing, let alone want to hear it right now. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and I got to give people credit. Like, if you do have a site that has music on it, like, you were trying to create an atmosphere and an environment, right? Like, just like you said. And, and, I, and I feel that, you know, I feel that. But people now, when they're viewing websites, they're usually listening to music of their own. Yes. And, then, and so you have to think about it from the perspective of your audience, and the yeah. audience in this case is anyone, millions of people that could be potentially viewing your website. So Totally. Or they're at work. They're at work or something. You're like, let me go check this out. And then suddenly some metal starts playing. And you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Advice. Yeah. Don't, don't autoplay music. Yeah, don't autoplay music. The other piece, just continuing on that Flash tangent a little bit. Um, so, you know, Flash, I would say, I would argue that at least in, on, for the photographer's implementation, that Flash is dead, right? I mean, it's good for other things because it's code, right, that you can do all kinds of cool things on the web with. Um, but for images, I think Flash is dead and is given way to HTML5 and, and more advanced technologies. So you mentioned mobile devices and iPads, iPods, um, you know, your phone, Android, all that stuff. This whole movement of responsive, right? Having responsive web pages. Can you talk to me about that a little bit? We've been talking about that on the show a lot, but I, I want to get it from the horse's mouth. When you have a, a site that is truly responsive, yes, you're the horse. What, is that, what, is, what does that mean? When a site is truly responsive, what does that mean? Yeah, so I mean, and that's a great question. So the um, the goal of responsive design is basically for the design of your site, the layout, um, to respond to the size of the browser. So on certain Squarespace sites, you can see this, um, and any other site for that matter that's a mm -hmm. responsive site. If, if you, they're designed to be responsive, not any site. If yeah. to be responsive, then they will actually scale as you drag your um, browser window. So, you know, if you are on a Mac or I think PCs do this too now. If you click at the bottom right hand corner, you can drag, you know, and you can actually resize your browser to the size of what an iPhone or Android might look like. And mm -hmm. you'll see the menu bar just kind of go from maybe the top or, or the or the side or whatever and flip to the top, let's say. If it's yeah. on the side, it flips to the top. And then images that maybe were once side by side are now one on top of the other. So you can see all the way down. So it's pretty cool. Like they just yeah. respond to the device, which is really cool. Like for me, it's, it's almost because you would think when someone says, yeah, the, the website responds to the size of the window, you would think the knee jerk reaction is that it's just going to scale things down. And at a certain point you, you're going to be on your phone, like trying to pinch and zoom, but right. it, it's actually taking the guts of the site and moving it around so that it makes sense for whatever's looking at it. Right. Exactly. And, and it's great. I mean, it makes for a better scrolling experience. It makes for a better, like, you know, kind of tap and go experience. Mm -hmm. um, and then in certain instances, you can even customize, like, the colors, right? So you can say on a mobile device, make the color of the menu bar uh -oh. this. Yeah. Make the navigation this. Um, make, 
you know, this color or this. So you might have a more simple color scheme on a mobile device because, you know, there's less space there to, to have, you know, a bunch of frills. Right, so, right. Um, so let, let's talk about the guts of, of Squarespace, and sp- in particular the, um, you know, we talked at the top of the show, we were talking about the Hurricane Sandy event that hit New York, you know, the, the, that trauma. So you guys, I read an article, which was the impetus of this interview, I read an article that you guys withstand that to some degree, right? You, you were you maintained a level of uptime that was beyond what other people were, were able to do. Can you just give me some insight into what happened? Like what, yeah. what, it, what was the, what was the feet on the street? You know, were you guys bailing water or p- piling up sandbags around the headquarters? What was happening? Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, um, the whole thing, just thinking about it kind of like it's sad, you know, cause it was, it hit New York really, really hard. And mm-hmm. um, kind of the night before Sandy happened, I had, just a really bad feeling about it. And I remember talking to my grandparents and was just nervous for New York and like, um, I was just worried. And, and sure enough, it, it hit really hard because yeah. I remember when, um, was it Irene or Katrina? I can't get them all straight, but, um, <laughs> but there was one that happened, you know, previous year and it, you know, it kind of blew over and wasn't so bad. Yeah. Um, but, but this was rough. And I mean, I live downtown financial district. Fortunately for me, I was actually, upstate New York when, when Hurricane Sandy happened, um, which was wild because I was, you know, watching it from afar, kind of online and disconnected. Um, but at the same time, we had hundreds of emails piping through from our team just all throughout the day to, to figure this stuff out. And, and I'll get into that. Um, and, you know, Westchester, where I was at, got hit really, really hard as well. Um, you know, some houses were being smashed in half um, by big old trees in the neighborhood that I was in, you know, and the house that I was at was okay, but, but man, it was, it was a scary time. So all that being said, Squarespace, um, we did, we, we got through it, um, as a company and as a team. And it was a very special time, um, to see a company that I work at go this intense to, to make sure that, you know, customers were okay. Or even just to try, I mean, I'll tell you, like there were multiple times throughout that thing where we told our customers, Hey, expect to, to see some downtime, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. We didn't have downtime that time, but now expect to see some downtime. And this Which frankly happened. would have been okay. Right. I mean, it would have been totally, it would have been okay. I yeah. understand you guys are battling something else. You know, if yeah. there's any time to go down, it would be in the middle of a, you know, an unprecedented hurricane. Right. Exactly. And that's exactly what it was. It was, you know, pretty intense, uh, extremely intense. And, um, so yeah, how'd so, you stay up? Like what, what so, was it? Like what was without going into the bits and the bites yeah, and the, you know, all yeah. that stuff. Uh, how did you guys stay online? How'd you so keep the, it? the basics of it? I mean, the gist of it is our, um, our founder and CEO, Anthony got a call, um, in like the middle of the night that was just like, Hey, we're getting hit hard, you know? Um, and so he was like, all right, I'm coming down there. So, the data center is in financial district, um, mm-hmm. right below where I live and mm-hmm. actually right next to where I used to live. And anyhow, he runs down there and grabs a backpack with some flashlight. He's like, what will I need in the middle of a hurricane? You know, <laughs> he's like figuring this out. And so he like packs everything in his bag as much as he can and bring, you know, takes it to the, the data center and, you know, runs up and starts talking with whoever's there. Um, kind of the, the monitor guy on staff and, um, 
and says, what, what do we need to do? You know, what can we do? And so basically what was going on is the, um, there's a, there's a generator on, um, on the roof, okay, mm-hmm. a power generator. And yeah. that was the, that was the worry is that power was going out. It wasn't like data was being lost or something. Um, but power was going down and that was what was going to cause the downtime. Right. Right. And the generator runs on fuel. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the question is, how long are we going to be without power? Mm-hmm. Well, the generator can run fine for, you know, however long on, on itself, you know, as a generator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but as long as you're have, feeding it. Yeah. <laughs> but to have the power out for five days or three days or whatever, you know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna happen. So we had to figure out how to provide fuel and the generator eats up the fuel. I mean, it guzzles the fuel. Yeah. And so we really had to um, figure out how to get the generator some more food, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. So we, we were, um, so there was a bunch of fuel at the, um, at the data center, at the location. And, but the, the problem was, is that the fuel was in the basement. Um, and and so, the generator is on the roof. Yeah. And this and, is, and this and is New York, right? <laughs> well, and this is a flood. I mean, this is a hurricane. Oh, so right. Where, yeah. where does water the water tends, go? <laughs> water seeks its level, right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, um, so water went down, and uh, we had to get buckets up, which is where the name Bucket Brigade came from. Yeah. And so, you know, first it's Anthony, then it's, you know, COO and, um, and VP of Engineering, and it's the, you know, the head guys, the head leadership team of our company, you know, digging in and, and carrying buckets of fuel up. Uh, I don't know if it's 17 flights of stairs or seven. I don't know. It's a lot of wow. stairs, a wow. lot of stairs. And, um, and they're heavy. That's... These are heavy buckets. Yeah. And think about it. The buckets don't hold that much. So they carry the buckets up and they're like, it, the generator eats the buckets worth of fuel in an hour or two. Wow. You know? And, and so then we get more people from the team and then we had problems with, you know, um, so you just like you had like a, a con- you had like a conveyor belt of fuel going with people carrying fuel yeah. up steps and dumping yeah. it. Oh, they they uh, got a whole system in place at one point for sure. Um, and then there was other people from other companies that also have um, servers and storage, kind of use their that place as their storage and yeah. So other companies came and got involved, which was great. Um, and I mean, everyone just kind of band together, and then like I said. We thought for one reason or another, we're running out of fuel and how, where are we going to get fuel? I mean, once the fuel runs out, right. the basement, that was my next question. Like how much fuel was down there? If this thing is guzzling fuel, yeah. at what point you're like, okay, we need, and then it's not like you can run to the gas station, right? Uh, well, actually at some point somebody did, um, <laughs> you know, and, and, um, and that got us through a tiny bit, you know, but yep. ultimately we were, you know, different people on the team were calling and trying to figure out where to get fuel trucks to come by and, and to be there for us. And then eventually we had to figure out how to get fuel connected to the generator up top. Yeah. And that wasn't hap- That didn't happen until like a long time, like multi- like seven days in or something, you know, like once we were back at the office, um, wow. when we really got situated and fine and like really felt good. Um, but this went on for a long time and we had to really keep it running. And once we kept it running for a couple of days, then I really felt the weight of it for our team's sake, you know, and for our customers. I felt like, hey, we kind of got through the first three days. Now it would be really wild to like 
lose power during the time. Mm-hmm. I, I think that while New York experiences the aftermath, you know, outside of like the big two or three days of a storm, the rest of the nation doesn't really see it quite as intensely. No, two or no. three days after. You know? Right. No, no, no. We, we yeah, during it, cause I'm in California, like during it, we just see like news bites and, you know, message alerts from AP or whatever. And it's, you're kind of disconnected from it, you know? And then after yeah. it's like, okay, what's the next big thing when you guys are still living through it. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And we're still, you know, figuring out how to get fuel, you know, yeah. up, to our, up to our generator to power this building that it's not like our building, you know, it's, um, it's a building that affects multiple companies. Yeah. Which is why, again, everyone kind of jumped in and helped, and and it was, you know, it. I know there's like worse things that happen in the world, you know, and there's there's bigger fish to fry at some yeah. point, you know, with people's lives at stake and and things like that. Um, but, um, but for our company, this was huge. Right. This was absolutely huge. We don't want to see, you know hundreds of thousands of customers without their website up for us, right. even for a small period of time, um, whatever that is. Cause an hour worth of downtime is really no good. I mean, that, that's, that hurts someone's business, you know, and we realize that, um, and we take it very seriously. And this company is, you know, we're, we're very fun and we have a great time, but like we are super intense about what we do and we care a lot for our customers. And I hope that that shows with our customer support team and, um, I mean, man, what they what they went through post Sandy was absolutely insane too, um, mm-hmm. and through throughout. I mean, I don't know. It, it was just really wild. It was just absolutely wild, and and I'm. So, I, bet, I bet it feels like it. It so probably feels like it. like once you like going back. I was in the military before, and like when you go out, when you hang with people on a normal day to day basis, um, when everything's normal. You, you, you know, there's a certain level of camaraderie and, and bonding that happens. But when you deploy, whether it's an exercise or real, and it's a real sort of mission critical event where, yeah. you know, bad things can happen if you don't do your job, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You, there's a different level of bonding that happens, especially yeah. afterwards when it's all over. So I'd imagine, you know, you guys became much tighter after this this event happened and you saw each other under pressure and how you performed. Because that's a true test of character, right? Yeah. How you can be, when, every, when the sun is shining and the sky is blue, everyone can be happy. But when it's bad, when things are bad, that's when you, people really reveal themselves in their true character, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it wasn't one of those things where, you know, where we kind of said, oh, don't worry, like those, they, it's taken care of, like people are on it. It's yeah. like, no, I'm there. Everyone was there. And, That's so and cool. I, I definitely would have been there if I wasn't, you know, stuck by the, the Metro North wasn't running at that point either. So wow. I, I couldn't, wow. I couldn't get in, but, um, so yeah, let, yeah. let's let's switch gears a little bit. Let's switch okay, gears a little okay, bit. Sure. Um, I know I want to be respectful of your time, so we'll we'll wrap up in just a little bit. But I want to dive in. A lot of questions that I get um, um, are, frankly, it's like WordPress versus Squarespace. Like there's there's WordPress dot um, org where it's just self hosted. You download the software, you put it on your server, you tweak things, you install your theme and you're off and running, you install plugins and get it to do what you want, mm-hmm. um, that kind of thing. And then on the Squarespace side, all that's taken care of you, taken care of for you, right? So you don't, you don't have to do any of that stuff. You get a username and password, you log in, you guys handle the server, you guys handle all that other stuff. What are the, what are, and I know, like we were talking about before we started the interview, 
you're in marketing at Squarespace, but we're this isn't a marketing show. So let's talk about the 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 pluses and minuses from a candid standpoint. Like why would someone want to use Squarespace over a WordPress install and vice versa? Because it's not a one size fits all thing, right? Right. right. Yeah. I mean, so you know, yes, I'm I may be a little biased, but of course. You know, but, but that being said, before before I worked here, I was using WordPress, and then mm. I found Squarespace, and I used Squarespace. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I wasn't biased, um, other than the fact that I liked Squarespace. Um, so that was interesting. I also really liked WordPress, and there were things that I found valuable in WordPress. So, um, so yeah, I'll, I'll speak to that. Yeah. Um, so... Was there a particular area you wanted me to focus on, or yeah, let's let's just talk about yeah, because you're right, it's it's a huge it's a huge question, right? Because it yeah. it goes down everything from customer support all the way up through. So let's talk. One of the big things that I hear about on WordPress and this weekend photo dot uh, com is on WordPress right now, and so I'm engaged yeah. in in that community, so I know the questions that come up. Um, so one of the questions that come up a lot is um, vulnerability of the site. And how when you install, say, plugins that weren't written, say, with care, you know, <laughs> being nice, that, that can open a hole for hackers to get in and bring your site down, you know. And then it's right. it's like an act of Congress to get it. And that, frankly, that's happened to me before where, yeah. you know, there's a plugin on the site. Someone went in and boom, I get an email from Google saying, hey, your site is serving up malware. We've delisted it and brought it down. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, you know, you're like. Yeah, Great, and I'm traveling right now. So what do I do? You know? uh, yeah. So so that so address that piece, just the vulnerability piece, because I know you know WordPress versus Squarespace. You guys probably are more secure, right? I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I, I think a lot of that has to do with like the kind of the the setup, right? When you're when you're on WordPress, you are your system admin, right? right. When you're on Squarespace, since we're managing all the hosting. Um, and you know, we have eyes on our systems 24 hours a day. I think that that gives you that extra layer of security. Mm-hmm. Um, if you notice anything odd on your site, um, you can write into support and get a response in just a few minutes that is them looking into your account and seeing what's up. Um, yeah. you know, and they're here at the office, um, so what do you, what do you lose? So aside from the security so piece, that's, that's a big part of it is just the eyes. Yeah. But what what do you lose? So if I if I go with Squarespace, because you one of the you drew a great analogy before we started recording, and that was the the idea of you know and the Android marketplace or Android versus iPhone, where iPhone yeah. is kind of is kind of a closed ecosystem, where Android it's not. And you guys would be the the iPhone of the right. web hosting world, whereas WordPress would be more of the DIY. You know, you you have the rope to hang yourself you know, kind of area, or you can extend it as far as you want. So right. talk about that. Talk about that. Why, why, and what do you lose by doing that? Sure, sure. I mean, I think that, um, so Squarespace is more focused on design, I think, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Than, than most companies. Um, and we want everything to look really good. Um, yep. So we try hard. So we try hard to, to make that happen. Um, whereas, with WordPress, there are a lot of templates out there that look great. Mm-hmm. Um, there is definitely possibility to make your site look great. Yeah. Um, and then 
in terms of like the kind of openness versus closeness, like we give you everything we think you need to make an exceptional website, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of our, our saying here. We try to give you everything. We try to give you analytics. We give you um, something new that's coming on Friday. <laughs> Which we're going to talk about in just yeah, a second here. <laughs> um, so, so that's cool. Um, but we, we try to give you everything you need, the different blocks to pull in, the different integrations. Whereas with WordPress, right, like you will kind of build your site and then you can go and find plugins and things. And it's kind of interesting because you're piecing together your own little world there. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, that can open up your system to just being a little bit less safe. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas here, everything that you can put onto your site comes from us. You know, that being said, you can add HTML and CSS and like add other things to your site. Like if you need to embed a widget from something, you can easily do that. So you can add code blocks from other places into Squarespace. Um, But you can't add like server side plugins and things that are going to like create a backend database for your site. Um, And so, you know, if you're just a massive business that needs a lot of server side tracking and, um, and, forms and kind of things that are responding and tapping mm-hmm. into your server, then it's, then it may not be the right solution. The other thing is just in terms of the like customization, right? Customization happens very differently on Squarespace and WordPress. If you're building a site on Squarespace and you want to add a new page to your site, then you click add page and it adds up into that little menu bar up there. And then you can start adding your content to the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you want to customize it, you go in and you start changing the fonts and the colors and the sizes and that kind of thing. Yeah. And with WordPress, you might can do some of that. And depending on like the template platform or whoever set up your site, they might have built in a system. Um, but there's a lot of different ways in WordPress that that can be displayed. So mm-hmm. you don't always know what experience you're going to get. Sometimes it may be a good one. Sometimes it may be a not so good one. It's theme dependent, right? It's depending on the theme that you buy. A lot of times, yeah. 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 And... And then, you know, with Squarespace, you can hack into the CSS. Um, in WordPress, you can hack into the CSS, the JavaScript, and kind of anywhere you want to in the site. Squarespace, mm-hmm. you can get to most places you need to get in the site. But we may have blocked off a few roads to um, allow for safety and consistency of experience um, and whatnot. So keep, keep people out of bad neighborhoods, right? So don't, don't go in there messing around with stuff to bring the whole thing down. Yeah, yeah in certain instances. Yeah, exactly. And so... It's just a different feel. I mean, uh, obviously, Squarespace is the route that I chose um, and the route that a lot of people are choosing. But, um, you know, I, I see I see some appeal for, for yeah. people in, in the world. Yeah, but the, the analogy is, is kind of like like shoes, right? We were talking about that a little bit before as well. It's like, you know, not everybody's going to want the same pair of shoes and there are different shoes for different reasons. So, you know, there's there's room for both players in the market. It just depends on what fits the way that your synapses fire better. You know, synapse or or, or I was going to say synapse space, Squarespace (laughs) is better for certain people. Whereas WordPress is going to be better for people that want to, you know, they're like, ah, I don't want to be restricted. I don't want to be sandboxed. I want to, I want, you know, I want to build this giant database driven thing and have all this plugin functionality and all that. Whereas, you know, Squarespace is good for the people that are on that side. So I want to I want to switch gears once again, finally, and talk about something cool that you mentioned that was coming up um, by the time that this airs. So when this interview 
goes live, actually, I'm going to make this video private. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I you know what I'm going to do, Ryan. I'm gonna we're going to record this separately. So I was just thinking about that. This this video is going is going to stream live right now. So it'll be on YouTube after we finish this. Okay. So. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag, so we will. We're going to record a separate piece that will announce this interesting thing that you guys have coming up this week. So we'll we'll end this interview, and then we'll continue uh, with a piece that will be edited into the show that goes live Friday. How's that sound? Sounds great. Thanks. Okay, cool. So let's do that. So let's end this interview. Um, so your stuff, the stuff that you're working on, like your, are your, I assume that you're still a musician and you are, you know, the photographer, musician, New Yorker. Where can people go to connect with you? Is there a place online people can go? And um, I would assume it better be a Squarespace site. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, you know, so I'm on Twitter. I got hacked yesterday. It was terrible. You got um, hacked? What? I got hacked, man. It was it was awful. I mean, I have a good password, but um, but basically, you know, a friend sent a link and it prompted me to click that link, which uh, I I did it like maybe on my phone or something, and I didn't realize that it was like not the Twitter URL, and I just didn't pay attention. And um, so you know, it asks you to log in to Twitter, but it yeah. was called like Tipster or something, and uh, and so then I you know it it sent spam to like everyone. Anyhow. So you can, you can connect with me. It was awful. Um, you can connect with me uh, at Ryan Stansky, S-T-A-N-S-K-Y, um, yep. on Twitter. Um, you know, my website is ryanstansky.com. It's super, super simple. Fair warning. There's, like, not a whole lot there, but um, but it's minimalist. Cool it's minimalist. minimalist. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> I'm very – I'm actually – I love it, you know. It's, yep. it's a good font, and it's it's clean, um, cool. and it describes me, and has so it's good. Um but yeah, so thanks so much. It's been been great to be here, and I hope everyone will check out Squarespace if you get a chance. Oh, they will. Yeah, they will definitely. Yeah, that's great. You you've given a lot of insight into it, so I appreciate you taking the time to to chat with me about it. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, you know like we were saying, it's a, an amazing service, and there's lots of stuff that people can do online. Period. So it just it blows me away that where where the world was just say ten years ago or whatever, and how people were struggling to get sites up and paying, I know, all kinds of crazy dollars just to get crappy sites online, you know. And now you can put together something that looks, you know, at least as good as what Apple's doing, you know, and put that online really easily, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. so good sure. stuff. So thanks, man. I appreciate it. You bet. Thanks. Okay. All right. Take care. Okay, so let's jump into the listener Q&A now. So we've got a couple of questions today. Dale Kurt writes, I just got into photography and I'm just branching out into landscapes and I had no idea how hard they were to get. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that you could just visit a pretty place, snap some uh, quick pics and be done. But I've started to learn that the weather, the time of day, and everything in between makes a big difference. So uh, Dale's question is, what's the best weather for doing landscapes? And he says he's learned the hard way uh, that a bright sunny day is is a bad day to go shooting. So what's the perfect day? Valerie, do you want to comment on that? Well, most people would probably say, oh, it's the golden hours. I, I like adverse weather. I like fog. I like snow and fog. That's mm. even better. I like minimalist landscapes. So, um, and I mean, I like a good sunset, 
but I like the blue hour that's right after sunset even better. Mm. Um, after the rain is wonderful because the colors are saturated. Literally. I don't think there is a bad, I don't think there's bad light. And I tell that all, I say that all the time. There's no bad light. Yes. High, high noon on, um, uh, and landscape, it's not going to give you the most pleasing results. Mm. Um, so of course, try to avoid that. And it's funny because a lot of people who don't, don't, who are not photographers think the opposite. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they say, oh, it's bright and sunny. It's perfect for pictures. Yeah. And, and uh, so it's always, it's always funny to hear. But I, I think photographers should go out more in bad weather. Bad weather can give you the most dramatic images. And, and for, I don't do a lot of landscape. When, when I do, it's usually in, in a snowstorm or in, on a foggy day. For that reason, because I like minimalist um, landscapes. So. I'm very much the same. I mean, I, I generally, I, I've got a, a very small amount of images that have blue sky in them. Um, a lot of them are really dramatic, cloudy skies. Or like you said, I mean, we're, we've just got back from the first uh, Hokkaido workshop for this year. And there was one place, it's actually quite rare, but normally you don't, we don't get fog or mist in February. But there, for two days in a row in one area, it was totally misty. There was snow on the ground. So I got both of the conditions that you were talking about there, Valerie, snow and mist um, or fog. Uh, but it was beautiful. We ended up with some really nice minimalist, uh, where there's, there's literally like one stop of contrast in the image. Yeah. Um, and I love that sort of stuff too. So that's I good I saw to your hear. images and I had the same weather condition that same when I saw your pictures, actually, I, I did. We had a, a snowstorm, and I went out to shoot, and uh, it's beautiful. If yeah. blue sky is boring, I mean, when I always tell people, if the sky is boring, just don't shoot the sky. Just get close. Well, that's exactly um, what I. Yeah, I, I, it's not as though I, I totally avoid clear days. It's just that when it is clear, I don't include the sky. Exactly the same. Yeah. Okay, Bruce. Uh, how about you? Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm I'm the same as you guys. Um, I I like the minimalist. Uh, obviously, being up here in Canada, we get our fair share of of snow, um, <laughs> so we do have to learn to uh, go out and enjoy you know shooting any time of the year. But I I love going out. Uh, probably some of my favorite images are taken when there's really thick like hoarfrost coating the trees. Oh yes, and I, that I just love that kind of. So for me, yeah. I, I don't prefer being out cold and being wet. <laughs> I'd mm -hmm. rather be nice and warm and dry. But in terms of photography, that definitely speaks to me the most is dramatic skies and, and those types of things. So, yeah, I think going out and shooting in, in inclement weather is the best. When we were in Italy, we were uh, traveling through the Cinque Terre area, and it, was, it rained the whole time, but we got some amazing images because of it. Yeah. So, yes, it would have been nice to have been dry, but, hey, mm. we got some great images because of the rain, so... Yeah, and and not coming back to the advice for Dale, you know, to sort of wrap it up. Obviously, what this means is that if it's if it's not good weather, then you don't have to worry so much about the time of day. But if if you you know if if the weather's not is good, then you know definitely start to think about the golden hours, the you know the the hour or so around dawn and dusk, and uh, you know just really think about. Also, for example, if you're going to be doing photographs of waterfalls, I one piece of advice that I often give is that a waterfall actually looks its worst when the sun's shining directly on it. Um, if you can find out the time of day, 
you know, use use something like the photographer's ephemeris, um, which is an, an iPad. I think you can even get it on a on a computer, but it's an iPad or an iPhone app. Um, and you you can basically look at scenes and find out whether the sun's going to be shining on the, the the waterfall or not, or or where the sun will be shining when you get to a particular place. Uh, use apps like that to figure out the the direction of the sun, and especially with waterfalls, I find that. Most of them are in ravines so or valleys. So if you can find out when the sun's not going to be shining directly on the water, that's actually a better time. Because once the sun shines directly on the water, the contrast goes crazy and you don't get as, as good a shot as you would if it was in shade. So, yeah, just think about that and uh, use the, the tools available to you to, to look at the direction, where you're going to be and where the sun will be in relation to you. Um, and also the moon, yeah. Don't rule out the moon. The moonlight can be can be beautiful too. So let's see. Let's jump on to question number two. This is from Jerry S. Uh, Jerry says I have tons of old photos that I want to convert for digital, for archiving and sorting purposes. There are various uh, film formats: a thirty-five millimeter APS and even some one hundred and ten. Uh, I would like some advice on how to go about this. He's got a 10-year-old uh, all-in-one printer that's got a flatbed scanner built in, uh, given good results but painstakingly slow. Uh, and he's thinking about setting up a tripod with a one-year-old Canon point-and-shoot and taking some photographs of the prints. What do you think about this method? So before we jump on, I mean, does let's say, Bruce, do you have an, any comments about this part, The you know, about the... The using a point and shoot to photograph the slides. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think that's going to work. Obviously, for the you know for the negatives and things like that, um, I don't think he's going to get the resolution, and it's just not that's just not going to work. It'd be fine if he had just the photograph, but right. um, I don't think that's going to work. So I think he's got to look at at scanning if he's if, if he's dealing with uh, with mm. film negatives. I, you know what? I, I think with a, I totally agree with with regards to a point and shoot. Um, they can get quite close, but I, I have heard of people using a macro lens and setting it up so that you you basically drop the images under a macro lens. Uh, mm. I think if you've got a really good quality light box and a macro lens, and you and you you marked out where you wanted to to where you had to put the slides to shoot, it might work. Um, and so you know, setting up a tripod and all of that is a good idea. Uh, but I would certainly try to think think about doing it with a with a good quality macro lens and a light box if you were going to do it that way. Um, I I think yeah. he's talking about taking pictures of the prints though. Oh yeah, photographs of the prints. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Um. So the other part there, he said he was he was worried about the number of shutter clicks. So yeah, and he also says that he, he doesn't want to wear out a camera that's barely used. Um. And that yeah, I mean that's kind of a catch twenty two if the camera's barely used, then you might as well go ahead and use it anyway because it wants to be used. Um, and there's, with a point-and-shoot, there there's no mirror like in a, um, an SLR camera, so you wouldn't need to worry too much about that. Um, and, you know, they're relatively cheap cameras. Um, but, yeah, let's move on. So, we, I mean, we've got uh, the, the, the general question here. You know, he's got tons of old photos, uh, he asks if he wants if he'd be better to buy a dedicated photo scanner that does each print individually. And I I want to jump in with a bit of advice here first. In that if if you I, mean, I remember doing this myself. I ha I have cases 
of old slides that I wanted to scan. And I think I did this about 12 years ago. And the first thing that I did was sorted through and just selected the images that I want, wanted to really archive. And I think I got it down to about 500 images out of tens of thousands. Um, if, you, if you really want to do everything, uh, what we'll probably do here is we'll, we'll look at this from two, two ways. If you really want to do everything, what, what the, the panel here recommends you should do, or, it, you know, like I'm saying, maybe just consider reducing it down to the bare minimum of the images that you really, really want to archive and keep. Um, and, you know, so for me, I'm thinking a, a flatbed scanner, if your old one's really slow, buy a new one uh, with, I mean, I, I have a scanner here that I bought uh, to, to continue to do this because I, I have been shooting film every so often, but not enough really for me to, to warrant me buying a, a dedicated slide scanner uh, or a film scanner. And I just bought an Epson. It's like $70. And it does a pretty good job. It's got a little um, a plate thing, that, or I'm not sure what you'd call it, a platen, or, uh, you know, this, this basically a holder that drops the slides in or, or strip film. And it does a pretty good job of locating where the, the slides or the negatives, the, the images are in the slide, the strip of film. And it's, it's pretty quick as well. So, you know, over a 10-year-old scanner, <clears throat> excuse me, you're definitely going to be better off. But if you have a relative, uh, you know, you're better off with a, a newer version. Um, and then you'll probably find that it won't be such a painstaking job as you, as you might think. But I, I definitely recommend doing it on a smaller number. Um, what, about, what about the rest of you guys? Bruce, do, do you have any ideas about you know, the flatbed or do, have you ever used a film scanner? Um, I, you know, I haven't. It's something that I've been thinking about because I do have um, some old negatives and some, some images that I want to archive and, and digital, you know, digitize myself. Um, I've got some just some family pictures and things like that that I want to, to do that too. Um, another option he might think about is there are some some um, services out there that'll right. do this for him as well, like companies like Scan Cafe and others, where you can ship off all your all your negatives and your slides, and they'll actually do the work for you. And then uh, some of them will charge you just based on the ones that you decide to keep um, after you sort of see them. So that might be, if, he's, you know, if he doesn't have the time to do it himself, that might be another way to, to do it. Obviously, probably would be more, more, uh, more expensive in the long run than if he bought his own and did it himself. But um, certainly if time's a, time is an issue, that might be a way, another, another option to look at. Hmm. I, I think, yeah, I mean, that's, if I was going to, this may be the, the opposite way around to how you probably should do this. But what I was thinking was, if I was, if I could get it down to like 500 images, I'd probably do it myself. But if I was going to do the the whole, you know, if, if he's literally got tens of thousands of images, I would probably do something like you say, send it out to a service like Scan Cafe. So, Valerie, have you have you had any experience in doing this sort of stuff? Oh, I can't can't do this kind of thing, and it drives me crazy. <laughs> I don't have the patience. So, Scan Cafe would be my answer solution 22 cents per picture yeah i mean it adds up but if and they also um they fix the if they're scratched or whatever they will they will fix them until it gets to be more expensive but i don't know how they work now but I, it used to be like bruce said where they scan everything and then you get to look at them and you pay the ones you want to keep mm. and it's done um it's done by hand 
and they every, every picture is done individually like you would at home except that's all they do and they uh, and i guess they do it well yeah. as the saying goes but um it's Unless he has the time. My dad has been scanning away all the slides when my brother and I were kids, and, and he's sending me all those pictures on a regular basis, but he's he's retired. He has tons of time. It's a hobby. Mm. Um, I, could not, I could not scan 100 pictures. He would actually drive me off the wall. But... <laughs> Uh, is that how you say it in English? Maybe I'm saying the wrong expression. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, Scan Cafe is very reliable. I know people who've used it. Um, it's very safe. They've had awards and they have really good reviews. Um, so that might be something he wants to consider. Mm. Even if it's a quarter of picture, if yeah. he has 100 images that are really, really valuable to him, and he wants them done well, and and they can do the color shift, and you know when uh, if the the picture is faded, they can fix that. They can do so much. Um, it's well worth it. Yeah, I I don't know how much Scan Cafe is, but as um, as you were saying, say if it is um, twenty five, if say if it's twenty five cents uh, um, a slide, and if they, if say if Jerry has. 10,000 images that only works out to $2,500 so yeah. I guess it would it would come down to whether Jerry has the time to do it in which case he would be paying himself $2,500 to do it or if he doesn't have the time like you say you know it's probably going to be easier to just send it out and get and get it all done I think if I was going to do more than more than a few hundred I would just get it get it done outside get it outsourced yeah, I'm looking right now at their site, and it's the value kit is 22 cents, a la carte is 29 cents, and then like a slides in a carousel, it's 4.95 per carousel. Oh, and you, you there are can't a lot beat of slides that. in a carousel. Yeah, yeah, you can't <laughs> well, beat that. If um, yeah, so Jerry, the uh, the thing is, my my advice would be if you're only going to do a few hundred, and you think you you're probably done with it. You probably can do it yourself if you think you'd enjoy it, but then you're not going to make your money back on the slide, on the scanner, if you're going to run out and buy a new one. So probably just comes down to send it off to Scan Cafe and be done with it. Enjoying is the key word there. Yes, you've got to you enjoy it, it. You're really mm. going to hate it. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. it's a laborious process. <laughs> yeah. I, I've got to say, I, I didn't enjoy doing my 500 or so. And another thing to think about here is is that I because I, I did a little bit of investigation into into the resolution, but I ended up with um, the the images that I scanned ten years or so ago, maybe twelve years ago. The resolution isn't even that good anymore. You know, it's like the ca well, at the time I was scanning at higher than the than the digital cameras, but the digital cameras at the time were only three megapixels. And now I'm looking back at the slides, and if I actually need to use them for anything, I've got to go and rescan them anyway. So. You know, future-proof yourself and just get it done as best as you can by professionals, and I don't think you'll go far wrong. Okay, so the picks of the week. Let's see. Uh, so as Frederick is not here, we, we're not going to be able to do his, so we've got three picks of the week for you. Valerie, what's your pick of the week? It's a book um, published with Peach Pit, 
and it's called Adobe Masterclass Photoshop, Inspiring Artwork and Tutorials by Established and Emerging Artists. And it was curated by our friend Ibarion X. Perello over at The Candid Frame. And uh, it's it's wonderful. And I'm not a Photoshop user. I stopped using Photoshop a long time ago, and I'm, I pretty much exclusively use Lightroom. And so if you're a Photoshop user, it's even better because every it has really, really great tutorials to do some really crazy stuff. Um, but just the images, the inspiration, just looking at this, this uh, the, the work of so many artists, and it, it's it's amazing. And the techniques they they use to achieve some of those images, so for, for montage, is that how you say? Photo, yeah. photo montage. Um, that can only be done with Photoshop, so it, you have the tutorials that go with it. So if you want to recreate some of that and, and put your own twist. Uh, so that's wonderful. I, I love the book just just to look at the, the work. And uh, it's it's people do some amazing stuff. So um, once again, it's called Adobe Masterclass Photoshop and by Ibarion X. Borello at Adobe Press, which is uh, published by Peach Pit. And how about you, Bruce? Um, I just recently came across this. I haven't uh, I haven't tried them yet, but I, I'm curious to try them out. It's a it's a company called uh, the Visual Supply Company, and they make a number of uh, Lightroom presets. Uh, they also make some Lightroom um, keyboard shortcuts, and they have a, a fairly popular uh, iPhone app called the uh, VSCO. So the website is vsco.co, and they have these uh, neat set of um, uh, film. Film uh, presets now. They have uh, three sets of these now for Lightroom or for uh, Camera Raw. And uh, so you can simulate basically films like a, a Kodak Porta or this new uh, pack that just came out uh, can give you that instant film look. So they have a number of different, uh, you know, like Fuji and Polaroid film film looks. And, uh, and you can combine them and layer them on top of each other and get some interesting results and some interesting effects. So if you're kind of uh, nostalgic for those film days and want to get that look a little bit with your digital uh, images, so uh, you might want to check these guys out and see what they have to offer. Um, they're just some Lightroom uh, Lightroom presets. Okay, so my pick of the week's usually a little bit on the expensive side, so I'm going to go with something really cheap that I just picked up, but I love, and that is a U-Speed USB three card reader. And uh, I've been traveling a lot, and uh, because I've I've just upgraded to. Uh, a 15-inch Retina MacBook Pro. So I've now got uh, USB 3, and I was looking for a reader, but I I didn't want something that plugged straight in. And you know, some of them have the the USB, uh, you know, the connector right there on the card. I didn't really want that because I wanted to be able to get the the device a little bit further away from the computer so that I could plug other things in. But I also didn't want one with a really long cable that a lot of them come with. So I was looking around, and I like U-Speed stuff. I've got I've got a few things that are from them, and I found this little. Uh, it's like a diamond-shaped reader that is basically it's got a, a little tiny USB cable built into it, and so it, I can just throw it into my bag. It does CF cards, MS. Well, do you know anyone know what MS is? That micro? No, it's not. The micro is on the other side. It's got SD, micro SD. And then there's an MS, which I'm not sure what that is. But um, memory stick, memory stick. I'm sure. Oh, that, yeah. I'm sure that's what it is. Yeah, probably the Sony. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
So, yeah, it's a nice little, it's fast. I've just tested it to see how fast it is, and it's it's um, it's really screams along with the, three, the, the USB 3. Of course, that's going to depend on the card that you've got in there as well, but uh, very happy with this. So the U-Speed uh, USB 3 card reader. I'll tell you because I just... I'll. I just ordered it. Ordered it as you were speaking. <laughs> <laughs> on it's, Amazon. It's very. It, it is very very good. It's an. It's, and it's um, cheap. Yeah. It's uh, how much was it? It's like sixteen dollars. Sixteen ninety nine yeah. on yeah. Amazon. Yeah. And it's tiny. Yeah, you're right. It's tiny because I was just looking at mine, the one I bring with on my travels. It has this cord that's like six feet long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't. I want everything to be as small as possible yeah. while I'm traveling, and this just fit the bill. So, I okay. uh, I'm happy with it. It's good stuff. Cool. So we're at the end of another fantastic episode. Where can we go to link up with you guys? Uh, Valerie, where can people find you? Um, my website, um, valeriejardinphotography.com, and I'll spell it out. V-A-L-E-R-I-E-J-A-R-D-I-N, photography, all in one word. And I'm mostly on my Facebook page, um, Valérie Jardin Photography. Um, but now I've been spending more time on Google Plus, and I'm yeah. enjoying it. So I'm trying to uh, to post every day now on Google Plus and see Good what happens. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Google Plus is great. I'm loving it too. Yeah, it's I, I like the way the images are displayed, and, and when you click on your gallery, all the images you ever posted. Yeah. I, it looks really good. Yeah, it, it's very nice. They, they they certainly have done a good job of of, the, and they keep making incremental updates all the time. So, yeah, yeah. I thought it, it was hard at first to get traction, as in getting a conversation going, or yeah, I was getting so many comments on my Facebook page, mm. and and getting conversation going. I put a question, um, like, uh, uh, could be, what well, I bought anything about photography, and mm. and I'd get. 40, 50, 60, sometimes 100 comments on, on any topic. And I found it a little harder for Google+, Plus, but that's probably because I have fewer followers there. So. Yeah, you've, you've, you've already obviously built up a, a, large, uh, a large number of followers and people that you're connected with on Facebook. So yeah. you know, it'll, it'll come. You'll just, you know, as, you, as people find that you're, or, that you're over on Google+, some people that are on both will follow you over. Tell, tell yeah. everyone, but put a note, put a link on your Facebook page. Say, hey, come and, come come chat with me on Google Plus as well. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay, Bruce, where can people find you? Yeah, they can uh, head over to uh, my website, which is momentsindigital.com. Uh, you can also find me on uh, on Twitter. I'm also uh, pop in on Google Plus every once in a while, and then of course uh, spend a fair amount of time on the This Week in Photo uh, website as well, keeping that up to date, and along with Patrick and the team. So that's been fun. So, yeah, this was great. It was fun having the, the inmates running the asylum today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we survived without Frederick. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So, if you want to keep up with me, I'm everything that I'm into is at martinbaileyphotography.com and I'm on Twitter and Google Plus as well. And uh, probably the most active socially on Google Plus these days, but uh, yeah, come and find out what I'm at, what I'm into on my own website. Obviously, we've got the Twip community on Google Plus now if you'd like to join us over there. And we've got the This Week in Photo website, so check us out there. But that's it. We're going to uh, we're going to call it a day there. And it's time to take that lens cap off.
Second Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production. Produced by Suzanne Llewellyn. With technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar. <laughs>